Welcome to Flying Podcast. You might remember back in episode 48 when I spoke to Mark, the uh, the physio at Barton. Well, since then I've had uh, lots of listeners contact me to ask whether I could uh, interview an ATCO uh, at a larger international airport, for example. So today I'm down at Manchester International Airport uh, to interview Chris Walsh, one of the uh, air traffic control officers there. And I was accompanied on my trip by fellow Barn aviator Duncan, who, um, as you probably already also remember, uh, appeared on episode 50 of the Flying Podcast. Chris very generously gave up uh, a couple of hours of his free time to give us a guided tour of the tower, uh, and then uh, settled into one of their meeting rooms overlooking the apron to answer all of our ATCO-type questions. Uh, good afternoon, Chris. Um, we're at Manchester Airport here. What type of airspace is Manchester Airport? Oh, good afternoon. Um, basically, Manchester Airport is Class D airspace, which is a normal type of airspace around fairly big airports. Um, it's Class D airspace out to probably, on the final approach, is 15 miles out and 10 miles either south or north of the airfield. Uh, that goes up to 3,500 feet. Above 3,500 feet, it's Class A airspace, which is the airspace that's quite restricted. Basically, means you have to be IFR yep. airliner type traffic that flies into it. The Class D airspace is uh, basically open to anyone who can fly, but who um, could be VFR or IFR. Visual flight conditions or visual flight rules or instrument flight rules, but you need permission to come into the airspace. Right. So we, you know, we know you're there and who you are. Okay. And to give people that are not familiar with the airport, how busy is it? How many flights do you handle a day or a year? Um, in terms of when the airport talk about movements, they generally talk in terms of million passengers a year. And I think presently Manchester Airport handles about 18 million passengers, which I think puts it at the third busiest airport in the UK after Heathrow and Gatwick. Stansted used to be busy, but we knocked them out of um, third place. Um, the number of movements per year in terms of thousands, I think we're somewhere in the region of 200,000 movements. But again, that doesn't really mean much to yeah. me. What we tend to think of in terms of air traffic, in terms of how many aircraft you handle, is how many aircraft you handle per hour or per quarter of an hour, because it gives you more of an idea just how busy you're going to be. Manchester Airport probably at the moment handles 500, 600 movements a day. For an hourly rate, that can vary depending on the time of day. Obviously at night, that might fall down to five or ten movements an hour. The busiest periods, which generally is seven o'clock to nine o'clock in the morning, we can handle possibly up to 50, 60 movements an hour. Wow. And as, as we sit here in April, is it coming to busy time? Is it generally kicks in around June time, when once the school holidays start, the charter flights start in earnest. Um, in terms of the busy periods, say 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock, which is probably our busiest hour, it doesn't actually make too much of a difference between the winter and the summer because in that period you get a lot of scheduled flights that operate all year round. So you don't notice a huge amount of difference between the winter and the summer for the very busy periods. The difference in the summer, there's a lot more traffic throughout the day. Uh, for example, in the summer with the charter flights you tend to get a lot more movements at night often in the winter they might have the last movement or there might be a movement 12 o'clock 
and then there might not be anything else to five o'clock in the morning when the transatlantics start. In the summer, um, between 12 o'clock midnight and four or five o'clock in the morning, you probably have 20, 30 IT flights, inclusive tour charter flights coming back from Turkey, Spain, Egypt, that, that type of thing. So they come back during the night, do they? Is that the norm? The charter airlines in the summer tend to get as much use out of their planes as they can do, mm -hmm. and they often do three rotations a day. So they might fly off somewhere in the morning down to Spain in the afternoon, off to Greece somewhere, and then often they do a flight at night, often a longer route down to Turkey or somewhere. Whereas in, in the winter, they might only use them more during the day. I suppose they're earning money while they're flying. They are. So, uh, I'm sure we've all been on a night flight sometime. <laughs> yeah. 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 You get to your holiday destination at four o'clock in the morning or get back to Manchester yeah. at four o'clock in the morning. Now you realise why it was mm -hmm. so cheap. How far out do you take over or hand over control of a flight once it's, or it's on its way or it's leaving the airport? Basically, Manchester Airport, we have uh, radar at Manchester Airport, so we have an approach control unit that basically protects the airspace around Manchester Airport out to about 40 miles. So we will work aircraft um, that are in our control zone out to 20, 30 miles. Uh, aircraft inbound that come in on the airway system, the big airliners that fly instrument flight rules, will generally call us about 40 miles away when they're descending through about 10,000 feet towards one of our holding stacks, which are, the, which, which are the points aircraft inbound fly to before they're given headings to fly towards the airport. So basically 40 miles is a good rule of thumb. Uh, okay. the, the smaller aircraft that fly outside controlled airspace, again, we'll work them out probably generally to 20, 30 miles before we hand them on off to another unit. Okay, um, a typical departure then, how would that work? So uh, an aircraft's on a gate, what's the procedure? An aircraft take, for example, like we were talking before, an aircraft going down to Heathrow, something like an Airbus A320 size. Basically, the first controller he'll call at Manchester is someone called a ground movement planner who works in the control tower, and uh, he'll give the aircraft its clearance. There's something called a standard instrument departure, which is basically an outbound routing yep. out of Manchester Airport that joins the airway system. He'll be issued with that. He'll be issued with a squawk for his transponder. He'll be given any restrictions on his route. If the route's busy, he's actually given a time to depart called an approved departure time, a slot time, and he has to depart within uh, basically 15 minute tolerance of that time. So oh, sectors down route don't get overloaded. All that information will be passed by the GMP controller. When it comes close to the, his departure time, and the, the aircraft calls for start, the GMP controller will transfer it to someone called a ground movement controller who's basically in charge of all the taxiways and apron areas uh, and he will give permission for the aircraft to push back from the stand. He will give it taxi instructions out towards the runway in use. As it's approaching the runway in use he hands it to another controller called an air controller who controls the runway and that controller in turn will give it takeoff clearance. Once it's airborne, generally passing two, three thousand feet, the controller in the control tower then actually passes it to what's called an area controller and they are the people who control aircraft between airports e.g. Higher, higher levels and the air traffic control centre that serves the bit of airspace around Manchester is actually up in Scotland um, at a centre near Presswick Airport and that aircraft will be handed over 
to a controller at Presswick, so we'll be actually talking to someone in Scotland. He'll give the aircraft climb and it'll head off south towards London. When it gets towards the Birmingham area, up at cruising level, it'll be handed over to a London controller who's at, one of the, who's at the other air traffic control centre that's um, in the country. There's two, one in Scotland and one at Southampton. Mm -hmm. That aircraft will be handed over to controller at Southampton who will then probably hand it over to another controller at Southampton that goes into a different bit of airspace who then will eventually hand it to a controller who controls the planes into Heathrow and when it's on final approach to Heathrow within 10 miles or so of Heathrow it will be handed to a controller in the control tower at Heathrow Airport once it's landed, a ground movement controller at Heathrow Airport so is there a chain it progresses along so from talking to a first controller at Manchester to the last controller at Heathrow you'll probably speak to maybe 15 different controllers en route. Wow, sounds like the cast of Ben mm. Hur's involved, doesn't it? <laughs> thousands of them, thousands of them. Uh, with regard to the A380, does that present any problems to you specifically? The biggest problem with the A380 is its size uh, as compared to other aircraft. Now, that's not a particular problem in the air. The only problem in the air when it's flying along, there's something aircraft produce called vort uh, uh, vortices, vortex wake, yeah. uh, which come off the back of the aircraft and it's dependent on their weight and that has to be avoided by smaller aircraft. If you fly through the vortex wake of an A380 too close it could turn you upside down which yeah. isn't particularly good. So there are certain distances we have to keep other aircraft behind. Does it get its own call sign? Is it heavy, super heavy? There's all aircraft are di uh, allocated a vortex weight category depending on the size. I think there's five different categories uh, going from light, which might be a Cessna 172, yeah. up to the maximum um, category, which is called a super aircraft. Yeah. Um, and there's only one aircraft in that category, it's the A380. And there's the ones 747 types, that are the next size down are called heavies. Yeah. So, but on the ground, it is more of an issue, basically because of its size. Its wingspan is very large, larger than any other conventional aircraft, and because of that, there's only certain taxiways it can go on because of clearance from buildings and etc. Or other aircraft stands. So, when it lands at Manchester, we, it is restricted to certain taxiways. There's two stands that are big enough to take it. Uh, and we always have a follow me vehicle because it's so large it yeah. always has its own vehicle in front of it just as an extra safety measure that guides it along. And in terms of the ILS you mentioned earlier about... Uh, there, is a, there is a difference with the A380 how it affects, the ILS is the instrument landing system which most big airfields have where aircraft land, they can land automatically using it and the, the A380 is such a big aircraft it can actually affect the beam of the ILS so if the A380 is on the runway or on final approach um, if another aircraft is using the ILS we need to leave a big gap behind the A380 so the A380 doesn't affect the ILS and bend the beam or whatever yeah. and affect the aircraft behind that's using the ILS. That was why it was on such a long time on the ground waiting for uh off. That's why if the A380 is taking off, the next inbound aircraft is usually quite a long distance uh, out, so the, if, in case the ILS is affected. Wow. It's still clever though, isn't it? Mm, very, very clever. Oh, impressive animal. Oh, really is. Do you still use those cars that we see normally and 
TV programs about air traffic control, the little cards that you The cards, the um, uh, plastic yeah. strip holders yes. that have the flight progress strips, they called. Yeah. We used to use those up till about two months ago, and they have been superseded by something called electronic flight progress strips, which basically look the same. Um, we have one strip to represent each aircraft. Yellow strips are aircraft inbound, and blue strips are aircraft outbound. Uh, whereas before we used to have a strip of paper that went in a plastic strip holder, now it's all done electronically on basically a TV screen, a VDU screen, and the strips are on the TV screen. Um, it's a system that NATS, the National Air Traffic Services, who provide air traffic at Manchester, have been using, I think Stansted was the first airport that used it about three years ago, and most NATS airfields actually use it, have uh, been using it for a while. We were one of the later NATS airfields to use it, so there has been a lot, we have a lot of, the company have a lot of experience of using them, and they are very, very efficient compared to the old systems. There's a lot of advantages. Uh, you used to physically the drop the strips down the little chute, didn't you, down to the... At Manchester Airport, there. because the air controllers are on a different level, a different part of the tower than the ground controller, when the strips were passed from the ground controller to the air controller for aircraft taxiing outbound. The only way, rather than throw them over from one side of the tower to the other, was a little chute that the ground controller used to play, place it on and it used to go down a slide yeah. to the air controller. But now the ground controller just pushes a button or pushes uh, the strip and it appears on the controller's screen and the air position, which is a lot easier in some ways. Did you ever, we ever attempt to make paper airplanes out of them to get them from one side to the other, just fold them up and... Um, some there is when it's quiet, people do do <laughs> uh, various things in the tower, but generally um, we're all concentrating quite hard. All <laughs> true professionals, mm -hmm. aren't you? Absolutely. <laughs> and I believe you're getting a new state-of-the-art control tower soon here at Manchester. Well, I can see it over there. Yeah. I mean, if you look behind you, there's a big concrete stem without anything on the top at the moment. The New control tower was started about two months ago, and they appeared very quickly. The, the concrete stone, which probably goes up um, 50 metres or so, was put up in a matter of a couple of weeks. The, the cab, or the bit that goes at the top, is being constructed by the side of it at the moment, and I think sometime in June they're going to lift that with a very big crane onto the top of the tower. That will then take about a year to fit the building out, and I think spring 2013 is about the time the time the new tower will open. The existing tower here, I think, has been in operation since the 60s, so it is quite an old building now. So the big advantage with a new control tower, of course, it will all be new equipment. Mm -hmm. So uh, the electronic strips were supposed to come in at the same time as the new control tower next year but they because they thought to introduce electronic strips which is quite a major change for us in the way we operate and going into a new building with lots of new equipment would have been a lot to learn and take on at the same time so what they decided was to introduce the electronic strips a year before we moved into the new tower so we were totally familiar with their operation will you miss the old building yeah, well, I'll certainly, well, most of us, I think, will miss uh, the building in terms of we're sat on the top of the terminal, so most of us often go down in our breaks, we can go to the shop so we can go and buy a coffee, whereas the new tower is on the remote part of the airfield on the western side by the hangars, 
uh, which there isn't as many facilities over there. I'm sure some entrepreneur will put mm. a butty wagon at the back for I'm you sure or something like that. There is actually know? quite a big uh, complex of hangars over there. With Thomas Cook have a big hangar over there, so I'm sure there will be something over there for us to go and have a, a butty. Or a It'd be Bob's butty mm. wagon or something like that. You're thinking, aren't you? Yeah, now. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> put one over there. It was a business <laughs> idea forming in my mind. Mm. Duncan's Donuts. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think somebody's <laughs> thought of that already. To be honest. <laughs> What exactly is your position? Are you an, an APCO? I'm an APCO Air Traffic Control Officer, yeah. Basically, there are 50, about, well, are 50 controllers, just slightly over 50 controllers at Manchester Airport. Manchester Airport is a 24-hour operation, like a lot of airports. Most of the NATS units, airports, are 24-hour operations, uh, and the Air Traffic Control Centres certainly are 24-hour operations. And the usual way of dealing with a 24-hour operation is to have a system of watches and most, if not all, NATS units have a, a system of five watches. Uh, and most units work what's called a 10-day cycle. So when we come to work, we basically each watch works two mornings, two afternoons, two nights, and then we get four days off in a row. So at any one time, there's one watch on morning shifts, one on afternoon shifts, one on night shifts, and then two watches on the days off. At Manchester Airport, we have uh, 10 controllers on each watch, is where the 50 number comes from. Um, basically, that is enough uh, p controllers to cover all the positions. In the control tower, at the busy periods, there's four controllers, the two air controllers, a ground movement controller and a GMP controller. And in radar, there's generally two controllers so 10 controllers covers all those positions. At night, there's only four controllers on, because obviously it's a lot quieter. Yep. What happens if you want to go for a wee at night? You can do that um, if on your break. There's four controllers in, and there's a generally, when it gets quiet after midnight, there's only two positions open. One person in the tower mm. does the job of what four people would do, do during the day but he can do that because it is a matter of 10 movements, yeah. aircraft movements an hour, and there's one radar controller on at night. So there's all normally two people working and two people on breaks. And how long do you actually physically work during that time? I mean, we saw a young lady walking through before and I mm. said, if you finished for the day, she said, oh no, I've only done an hour. Mm. So is, is it an hour you do and then a break? And uh, when, I, when I first started in air traffic, the hours were Basically, it's, you went into work when I was at Cardiff, and the hours weren't regulated at all, so you could actually work three or four hours without a problem. It was unusual. Probably about 15, 20 years ago, the Civil Aviation Authority introduced something called Cratco, and it meant the hours a controller could work were regulated. It's the same as pilots have. You obviously don't want a pilot flying for 15 hours solid mm -hmm. without a break, so they are limited in their hours and we are limited in our hours. The basic rule is a controller can work a maximum of two hours and after that two hours you need at least half an hour's break. The way it works out at Manchester Airport we generally work an hour and have half an hour off. And at the end of that hour are you worn out? Do you need the break or is it, is it just you take the break because it's mandated? You, it depends on the traffic situation. Like I said, sometimes in the morning the, there's, there's peak periods of traffic during the day which tend to be the busiest hour, tends to be 7 till 9 o'clock in the morning. 
If you come in on the morning shift and plug into work in the tower, for example on ground movement control, which can often be the most complex, busiest um, position on the airfield, if you worked an hour, seven to eight o'clock in the summer, you can work very, very hard, so half an hour break is uh, quite welcome. So you're already stood up when your relief arrives, are you ready to unplug and run away at that point? It's nice to go and have a cup of coffee, yes, and, and relax. And what facilities do they give you here to relax? I mean, you mentioned before the fire station over the far side has got a lovely uh, snooker mm. table. Um, we we have a, a restroom uh, which has a TV in, so... So they've uh, pushed the boat out for you? They have it? pushed the boat out. They've even got Sky Sports on it. <laughs> oh, fantastic. We should, we should have done this one evening. Uh -huh. there, was a, there was a game on or something like that. So, so no jacuzzi, no pool, no... Um, no, no, they we are reasonably limited into in our facilities. The, this is quite an old building now, so this building's about 40 years old. When we get our new uh, control tower, hopefully uh, our restroom will be pretty pretty modern. At least you need to get yourself an Xbox mm. or something like that, mm -hmm. don't you, to uh, better call the duty to vent the mm. frustrations of the day. I think that might be in the plan. <laughs> <laughs> Microsoft Flight Simulator. Mm. Yeah, well, that would be, that'd be <laughs> the thing. So you've been working for quite a few years, so it's, you, you've coped obviously with this changing mm -hmm. shift pattern, I think that would yeah. probably do my head in working on those different shifts. Um, I suppose there's lots of jobs that involved shift work and supposedly sh working shifts are supposed to take years off your life, so I've heard, although there are quite a lot of controllers I know who seem to go on for a few years after retirement. Yeah. Um, it depends on the individual, some people suit suit shift work more than others. I have to say I quite like working shifts and having the time off in the afternoon yeah. or the morning and having time off during the week. Um, and working bank holidays for example, I find nothing worse than going out at the weekend on a Saturday where yeah. everywhere's busy. Yeah. So some people obviously wouldn't like to work a night shift and there are disadvantages in working nights. You do feel after working two night shifts, which we do, you do feel quite tired and it does take time for you to recover, mm. maybe especially as you get older. Now you're over 21. You're now I'm over 21, it, you do slow down a bit and you do feel the effects maybe slightly more. Do you get the four you days off then after you, you mentioned before, it's two mornings, two afternoons and two nights, is it then you always have the two nights before you have your four rest days? The shift pattern is, there are slight variations on it but the shift pattern is generally two mornings, two afternoons, two nights. What tends to happen, because nights are quieter, they um, only need four people on a night shift. So what tends to happen, half the watch, rather than work nights, slip onto what is a, a day slip or an afternoon. Yeah. So some of the people on the watch will do two mornings and then two afternoons and then an additional two afternoons rather than working the nights. So you get those four days to recover though? Which is slightly better in an, than working in a night shift in some circumstances because you get four clear days off whereas if you work a night shift you're working into your first day off yeah. and they spend the rest of the day in bed and they spend the rest of the day slightly bleary eyed recovering hoping the neighbours children mm -hmm. aren't as noisy as yeah. they were mm -hmm. last time and that sort of thing so if somebody wanted to, a job as a, an air traffic controller how do you go about it what sort of qualifications do you need what sort of personality um, well, it's 25 years since I went through the selection procedure, so I'm not fully up to date with it. Basically, if anyone's interested, Nats have a pretty good website, and if you go onto that, there's a section on careers that explains it fully. It has changed over the years. When I started in air traffic, uh, there was still 
a hangover maybe from the military days um, or even national service days after the second world war when air traffic started I think a lot of people actually went from the military into the civilian side and in air traffic control when I started at Cardiff there was still quite a lot of people in their 50s 40s and 50s who'd done national service who'd been air crew or been controllers in the RAF as the military has got smaller and the, the way the system's changed it, we have taken on more people maybe who've come straight from university or straight from school um, the way the system works at the moment there is quite a lot of people who do come from go through uni university although there's still quite a, a large number of people who have worked in a different type of job for two or three years and decide to go for a career change but there aren't many people on the young ones who tend to come from other aviation backgrounds maybe surprisingly compared to what they used to be yeah. so it can be quite a stressful job but it's a fairly controlled stress isn't it yeah it's 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 it has moments where it does get very busy but it is very well regulated and the amount of traffic which is one of the factors obviously that makes you very busy is pretty much well controlled and over the years the systems have got better and the protections have got better to stop controllers getting overloaded so most of the, there are occasions where the weather might be very poor and aircraft are avoiding weather which might slow, th slow things down where the work level does go up um, but generally say it's all pretty much of a very controlled system ever feel any stress at the fact that you've probably not thought about this before and I'm going to put the thought in your mind that these tin cans have got a whole load of people and their lives are in your hands? It's not surprising maybe something you tend to think about uh, too much no it's not something that really I've I think planted about the too seed much now, haven't I? That's, yeah. that's it it's all going to fall apart now. <laughs> I think most people cope with the pressure quite well and if you I suppose there are some individuals who if you did worry all the time about making mistakes and about how many people's uh, or lives you have in your hand if you're working seven or eight aircraft it, it be, could become a, an issue but those sort of people wouldn't necessarily go into this type of career anyway we were up in the town before and uh, I mean it's not particularly a clear day um, but you can see for miles the view is brilliant mm. what's it like when it's foggy stuck up there is it, is it a bit eerie when it's foggy a whole set of procedures do come into place uh, that change is the method of operation when it does become foggy the basic rule is the whole system slows down um, that's one of the slight problems where if there's fog you do de tend to get delays um, but there's no way around it safety comes first and the movement rate for example Manchester Airport in the morning you could do up to 60 movements an hour between 7 and 8 o'clock if fog suddenly appears um, that movement rate will probably be reduced down from 60 movements an hour to in the region of 25 movements an hour because of the procedures that come into place mm -hmm. to protect the traffic for example when it gets very foggy aircraft obviously the pilots can't land by looking out of the cockpit window and something called autoland is used where the autopilot actually uses the instrument landing system um, to actually it's coupled to the instrument landing system and can actually land the plane automatically on the runway but because you're doing that you have to leave bigger gaps between the aircraft that are landing which is what reduces the movement rate fortunately fog 
occurs pretty infrequently. It uh, happens maybe five, six days mm -hmm. during the year when you get particularly bad weather. So when it does get fogged, there can be some delays, but it's pretty infrequently. Okay. So how did you end up here then, Chris? Um, basically, I'm fairly local. I come from Bolton. Um, so it's my home area, which is the reason I found my, back, my way back to Manchester Airport. I knew about the job air traffic when I was a youngster, mainly an interest in planes, and I applied after university. And I did the cadetship with the Civil Aviation Authority to train as controller. And then my initial posting was to Cardiff, and I spent five or six years at Cardiff Airport. And then they, I applied to Manchester when a vacancy came up, and eventually got to Manchester. Uh, I've been there. I've been here for 15 years now. But, um, in that time, then things have changed. I mean, we just watched the A380 depart. That's a beast of an aircraft, isn't mm, it? I mean, uh, when you started, what, what, what were they, what were they flying out of here? It's not changed too much. A lot of the aircraft um, when I started was still the 757, 737s. Airbuses were around in those days. The things that tend to have disappeared are the older 60s generation noisy jets, 737, 200s, 111s. Um, a lot of the British made airliners have disappeared yes, yeah. uh, the Morris since Miners those of days. The sky. ATPs, um, the BAC 111s, Viscounts were still going were at that time. Uh, they were tend to be used at night on freight flights, um, but there were some around when I started, but those have tended to gone. Um, the A380 is obviously a new aircraft that's the newest that's around. That started operating out of Manchester, I think, uh, last year or 18 months ago. Um, Emirates operate it out of here once a day to Dubai, which is unusual for a size of airport as Manchester. Although Manchester Airport's a big airfield, it's quite a thing, a prestigious thing for Manchester Airport to have such a big plane operating. It tends to be the big hubs such as Heathrow, Paris, that operate the aircraft so Manchester is quite lucky in that way. Um, we had a 787 in last week that was brought in to show I think it was mainly Thompson Flyer who are getting the aircraft next year who have a big base here. Uh, they are going to operate it out of here next year on charter flights so I think it was mainly brought in to show show them their staff at a 787 and show, show, show the airport as well. Okay. Do you actually fly yourself? Yeah, I've got a private pilot's license, uh, which I've had for about 20 years now. Um, I first learnt to fly when I, when I went to university. I, w I used to be in the air training corps and I joined the university air squadron. So I actually learnt to fly with the RAF when I was at university. And I got my private pilot's license when I uh, was posted to Cardiff and have kept, kept it up since. So. 20, 30 years ago, or uh, probably 30 years ago, the Civil Aviation Authority, when they trained controllers, used to do, all the controllers did a private pilot's license yeah. as part of the course. That was changed to just 15 hours flying as a sort of familiar type thing for trainee controllers. And I think uh, now the system is, unless you're going to work at an airport, you don't do any flying because it's not considered as necessary as it, is, as it was. Mm -hmm. um, so there are some controllers still in the system who have PPLs. They tend to be the older controllers. Uh, there don't tend to be many of the youngsters who fly, mainly because it's such an expensive uh, hobby 
compared to what it used to be. Past the RT exam. Mm. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing you still have to do. Even a qualified controller, you still have to sit the RT exam. And is that the same RT exam you would sit as a PPL? When I um, did my PPL at Cardiff, although I was a qualified controller, I still did my RT exam. Although it, you have a certain advantage over other people. You'd be disappointed start. if you, you would didn't be pass, if you wouldn't failed you? it. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, mean, yeah, yeah. I think, I think mm -hmm. you might be frowned upon <laughs> if you were to fail that element of it, wouldn't you? So as a, a PPL yourself, you obviously understand the requirements of a, a GA pilot that's flying to or near your zone. Um, how happy or otherwise are you at Manchester with GA traffic asking, let's say, for a zone transit? Um, our involvement with GA at Manchester is quite limited now. We, you, when I arrived at Manchester, when there was just the run one runway, there was quite a com uh, quite a big GA community on the south side, two or three flying clubs. Um, when they built the second runway, most of those moved out. They kept uh, one flying club going that was actually here till fairly recently, 2008. Manchester Gorilla Flying, so we had some familiarity with the operation of light aircraft. Since then, there's very few light aircraft that actually land at Manchester Airport. Most of our involvement are uh, aircraft transiting the zone, which actually tend to be helicopters that are landing at sites within the Manchester Control Zone. We do occasionally get VFR transitors, fixed wings. Uh, we also obviously get the occasional aircraft that calls for a basic service outside the zone, e.g. in the low-level route, which is to the western Manchester Airport. Yep. Um, so we don't really have a huge dealing uh, with, with the GA community as compared to what we used to do. So do you try and dissuade them or what? In terms of aircraft flying locally, uh, transit, transits through the Manchester Control Zone are quite difficult to do. For example, if someone was flying from Barton to somewhere to the south and they wanted to fly over the top of the Manchester Airport, basically that's not going to happen. Manchester Airport is a busy international airport and you wouldn't get someone flying over the top of Heathrow or Gatwick in a Cessna 172 and the Manchester operation is pretty pretty similar. We occasionally get aircraft that will cut a corner of the control zone and it's very occasionally uh, we get aircraft that taking photograph, um, taking photographs, uh, photo survey type flights that have authorization to take photos. Uh, so we're mainly limited to helicopters operating in the yeah. control zone. As we came out of the tower before, there was a notice saying uh, something along the lines of "bothered by an infringer, report it." Do you have many infringements here? One of the biggest, one of the biggest problems Nats as a company have safety. Uh, issues is with aircraft infringing control airspace, that's entering control airspace without permission. It's a particularly relevant problem around the London area, um, the London t terminal area that, c that protects the London airports. They have hundreds of infringements every year and it can, can cause civil uh, airliners to be diverted around them can cause aircraft to be held on the ground for short periods of time and that has put a lot of effort in, in trying to reduce the number of infringements which has been reasonably successful. In terms of Manchester we don't have as much of an issue maybe as they do down south. We tend to have probably annually about 30 infringements a year that's with aircraft entering without entering controlled airspace without permission. 
generally though they do, don't cause too much disruption because we generally track them down, find out who they are pretty quickly and help them on their way. And the, mm. and the best way, I mean I was once told by a controller that uh, if you think you've caused an infringement the best thing to do is speak to the controller or the, the area involved, apologise profusely, grovel mm. uh, and then try and sneak away. Um, well, I, I seem to talk to them is the best thing to do in those circumstances. One of the, the best thing you can ever do if you're lost or uncertain, or, or uncertain of your position, you put it that way, and you know there could be, uh, there's a biggish airport in your vicinity, the first thing to do is call uh, on that airport's frequency to speak to a controller there, or any controller that operates in the bit of airspace you're in, and they will immediately give you assistance and help you find where you are. That is the best thing you can do, is admit or call someone and say you're uncertain of your position and then you will get an assistance. The worst thing you can do, if you aren't uncertain of your position, is do nothing, panic and keep quiet and just hopefully no one will notice because if you are inside a control zone, you will get noticed on radar. I mean, we've, we've just been and looked at the radar screens and there's, there's one thing for certain, you will get noticed. Uh, I mean, you know, there's nothing getting missed on there, is there? Even the wind no. farms were showing up and, and things like that. So Unless you're, not you're in a, a stealth bomber, <laughs> its chances are you will get noticed. Yeah, I think you'd struggle mm. off the grass strip at Barton mm -hmm. um, to get one of those off the ground, wouldn't you? Uh -huh. um, you mean, you've got the low-level corridor, as you mentioned before. Um, the advice there seems to be to squawk, I think it's 4366, is it? 7366. So, 7366. Um, that um, was interesting. In the low level, who were familiar with the airspace, rather than call uh, the a controller at Manchester, because we are the controlling authority for the low level route, they tended to just listen out on the frequency. Uh, several years ago, at various units around the country, they introduced what's called the listening out squawk. And what you do, if you listen, monitor a frequency such as Manchester Airport, you monitor the Manchester approach frequency. Uh, you put a, a squawk on called listening out squawk for Manchester, it's 7366. And then if you're flying down the low level route, for instance, and you turn towards controlled airspace, you're getting very close to the boundary of controlled airspace. The controller at Manchester will notice you and he'll see the squawk and knows you're listening out on the frequency. So he'll be able to say aircraft squawking 7366 at such a location, say a call sign. And if you are listening out, which you should be, you'll be know it's you and then you can call the controller and he'll be able to give you navigational assistance to turn you outside to control their space. And it's a system that actually works very well. And would you rather they did that than speak to you directly? It depends on the circumstances. There's no, what, 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 what we aren't saying is under no circumstances uh, call the controller at Manchester. If you're not familiar with the airspace and slightly unsure, the weather's not too good, and you've got maybe a problem that you're dealing with, e.g. a rough running engine, by all means you can call the controller, who again will hopefully help you out. For example, student pilots on cross-country flights, um, we have an agreement with the flying clubs at Barton that if a student's on a, on a, a cross-country flight solo and they're going down the low-level routes, they are encouraged, or the flying clubs, um, the instructors tell, the um, the student to actually call on our frequency. One, we can keep an eye on them and help them out if necessary. Two, it gets the student used to talking to a controller at a, a big ATC unit. 
Um, so there are circumstances where we are quite happy to talk to them. Basically, somewhere like the low-level route, though, is a very busy bit of airspace, and the, the basic rule is see and avoid in terms of VFR flights because in terms of calling Manchester and expecting to get a, a service, e.g. some sort of radar service, so we can point the, the aircraft out, it really is too much uh, of a busy bit of airspace and we are really too busy dealing with the airliners flying into and out of Manchester to provide that type of service. Well, as, as we trained, we were up and down the low level the quite road, a lot, yeah. so it doesn't present that much of a, a problem for us, but we talked to pilots coming from down south and say, oh yeah, you should fly up to Barton, and mm. said, well, no, no, I don't want to go up the low level, it's not that much of a problem, is it really? It is, it isn't, but it's, I suppose, like most things, if you were to fly down to a bit of airspace, e.g. there's quite a, something equivalent to low level route, for example, down south would be flying in between the Luton control zones and the Stansted control zones, which is actually quite a narrow bit of airspace and a busy bit of airspace, and so if you were doing a similar, if you were going down south and you're not familiar with that airspace, you were having to do something, having to do that yourself, it's, I suppose, reverse it, it's someone from down south is flying through the low level route. A lot of it's just actually pre-planning. Yeah. I mean, I don't think in the whole history of the low-level route there's ever been an incident, has there? Uh, two aircraft coming together in, in the whole time. It's touch word. No, there's. Uh, it's been around for a long period of time, and there's actually been very relatively few air proxies. I think the time I've been at Manchester, a couple of light aircraft have filed air proxies or an air miss report against traffic, uh, other traffic in the low-level route. But uh, generally, the system works very well. I usually find, I mean, we were discussing this before, weren't we, Steve, that you go up and down the low-level route, you get told by Manchester of, of traffic, you're looking out for it, and all of a sudden you can hear it talking to you, it's behind you. Yeah. Like, how, how they ever shot anybody down during the Second World mm. War, I have no idea. They must have better eyesight than me, there's, mm -hmm. no, there's no doubt about that. Um, I think the rule with the, the, the low-level route is just use it. I'm, mm. We grew up with it, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. But it's not a problem at all. And I think if you're going to go up and down, you've got no choice really, have you? Because otherwise, the, if you're flying from south to north, uh, Manchester and Liverpool airports does pre um, present quite a big bit of airspace, and the only ways really to get around it, for example, if you were flying from somewhere in southern England, an airfield south of Birmingham somewhere, up to Scotland, you can use the low-level route. You can go round to the west of Liverpool, which means flying just over the sea, or you can fly to the east of Manchester Airport. Again, might not be an issue apart from there's quite high ground out there, and um, because of control airspace, you have to stay below that. Some big mass. It's um, it's it's quite a narrow bit of airspace, which is fine in good weather. In poor weather, mm -hmm. it's it's not an ideal route to fly. No, I find the, uh, the lumpy bits on the ground hurt mm. when, you, uh, yes. when you hit them, the rule try to avoid them. Do um, you get any funny stories with uh, GA pilots going up and down the low level talking to you? Uh, most pilots um, normally come out with a reason for infringing control airspace. Um, with, there's a very good system in place now, if someone infringes uh, and a, a, the controller will fill out a man what's called a mandatory occurrence report for any aircraft that infringes, it's a, a compulsory report to file. And then the basically our, our uh, investigations section at Manchester Airport, if we f can find out the registration of the aircraft, we will send a letter off 
to the pilot who then fills out a form, a form electronic, electronically that's actually on a website that's put into a central database for uh, NATS and so we can put all the stats together and find out why maybe there's a hotspot for infringements or why people are infringing. The reasons why people infringe vary. Um, the biggest one being navigational problems. Um, there are instances where people come out with quite strange reasons. There was one that departed from Barton going to the east or northeast and ended up flying into the control zone, flying east instead of northeast, and he put it down to his wife nagging him who was sat next to him. Um, there was a pilot who infringed to the east of the zone who was actually going up to Scotland somewhere and ended up one diverting to Barton but took a shortcut instead of going around the edge of the control zone went through the control zone but he wanted to use the toilet and he was pretty desperate to go and that was a bit of a distraction which is fair a fair enough reason <laughs> so but, but but most pilots are pretty honest, and we do say get quite a lot of good data to f figure out where where the problems are. Yeah. You, you mentioned about filling in this report online. I, I deduce from what you say that's more about working out why they've infringed rather than to hunt them down, put them against the wall, and shoot the, them. The, the uh, NATS have a policy of, uh, and the CA certainly have a policy of uh, prevention. Is the better is the is the way to cure the system rather than going with a, a big stick at pilots. And generally, if someone infringes, the CAA will look at retraining or trying to find out the reasons, educating people uh, to try and avoid doing it or not doing it again. There's this myth, maybe about prosecution myth, that the CAA will prosecute people if they going to control their space without permission which is basically infringing legislation and sort of legislation that's in the air navigation order uh, the CA will really look at it and really try and go down the re-education route the only times I've known people to be or the, the CA to go down the prosecution route when people tend to be repeat offenders maybe infringed two or three times and after the first time they've done it, they don't really seem to have learnt their lesson, are very blasé about it, yeah. and maybe don't take on the re-education theme as they should do. Yeah, it's, it's all about safety, isn't it? If you're going to disregard it, you cause a problem. So um, you don't get points on your licence, do you? But um, maybe there should be a system of points. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Generally, the way the way the system works, uh, for example, if a student pilot or someone who flies for one of the flying clubs locally. Uh, infringes is generally a matter of going through with their instructor what they've done wrong and then maybe doing a couple of extra hours navigation something along those lines and that tends to be the best way to or work around the problem a good GPS provider mm. <laughs> with an up-to-date database or something of as long as they know how to use it well that's, yeah, that, <laughs> yes fair point fair point uh, We've had a great visit around the tower. Is it possible for GA pilots to come and visit the tower themselves? Um, we do do visits uh, for PPLs, our student pilots, um, during the year. We, we generally probably do five or six visits a year with five or six PPLs. It tends to, the problem is you can only have a limited number of people on each group, really, which yeah. we restrict to five or six. 
Uh, we often do them every couple of months and they are normally organised through the flying clubs at Barton. Uh, every year there is a CA sponsored uh, weekend, it's normally in September, a visit ATC weekend that certain units around the country okay. will um, have people, have a PPL uh, our student pilots to visit and it, it is done on, on web, advertised on websites so people okay. keep their eyes open for that. Okay, I'll stick a link on mm -hmm. the Flying Podcast website about that. Uh, you actually get out yourself and, as well, don't you go and do talks at flying clubs? We do presentations uh, locally to GA organisations, normally flying clubs, and we've done several at Barton over the previous few years. Uh, we generally do one or two a year. So we do like to keep in touch. We actually have a very good working relationship as a unit with Barton and uh, the operations staff at Barton because they are obviously the experts on GA rather than uh, as then they they are much more knowledgeable yep. on GA operations than really we are. I think from a private pilot's point of view, you fly up and down the country as, as we do, and some of the air traffic units are friendlier, shall we say, than some of the others? Um, I would really wouldn't like to comment. I suppose it does vary occasionally from unit to unit. There are different types of unit around. For example, in the Manchester area, um, the I suppose if you're flying south somewhere, one of the big units a lot of people work is uh, Shawbury, RF Shawbury, which provides something called a LARS, Lower uh, Area Radar Service which is dedicated to actually providing a service, even a radar service in some circumstances, to aircraft in Clash G airspace. And that is all geared up to providing that type of service. The busier airports, like I said, aren't really geared up to providing anything that, other than a, a basic service. There's, there's one airfield down south, I won't name them, but whenever you call them up, they always suggest you call somebody else. Mm. Is that a Nats thing? Is that a, a that airfield thing, or or is that, or have I just been unlucky in the hundred or so times that I've spoken to that? Angle? It depends whereabouts in the country you are. There's there's certain areas of the country where there will be a unit that is more uh, geared towards working VFR traffic. For example, if you fly down in the London area there is something, there is a, a large service provided by Farnborough Radar which covers the whole of the area around the London TMA and it is geared specifically for aircraft in Crash G airspace and provides a basic service or will provide a radar service and one of the aims of it is to help uh, prevent incursion or infringements rather into controlled airspace in the London TMA area. So you would probably be better at calling for service from the from Farnborough radar maybe than you would for example one of the London airports, a bus one of the busy London airports that aren't really geared towards yeah. providing services outside controlled airspace. Last question for me, what do you think the future of uh, ATC is? In terms of how things are going to change over the next 20-30 years, I think there will still be controllers around um, for the foreseeable future. It, it has really, considering technology has gone on leaps and bounds in the last 20-30 years, the way controllers work hasn't changed that fundamentally. It's basically in the control tower, sat looking out of a window, controlling aircraft 
by actually watching what's going on on the runways and taxiways. In terms of working radar, it's sat down in front of a radar screen and working out where to send aircraft to keep them separated. There, there, are, there is technology that's been introduced such as something called TCAS in airliners traffic collision avoidance system where aircraft do get close together due to um, the safety, all the safety nets working and maybe something going wrong that will uh, provide information to the pilot how to, how to prevent a collision either climb or descend away from the other traffic we have equipment on our radars if aircraft there looks like a potential conflict that it will warn us of it the basis basics are still the same though it's a controller set in front of a radar screen separating traffic and I suspect that will continue for the next 15-20 years without any major fundamental changes. There's a joke doing the rounds isn't there, in future in aircraft there'll be a pilot and a dog mm. and the uh, dog is uh, the pilot's there to feed the dog and the dog is there to bite the pilot if he touches mm -hmm. anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you feel at some point in the future it's going to get to the point where there's no human intervention you, it's it's possible, although personally I can't see it. I think there's always going to be a human element in in the system. I, I can't envisage even going down to one pilot. I think there always will be two pilots in the cockpit and probably some former controller on the ground, maybe a more automated system, but certainly people involved in the system in separating aircraft. But the ultimately, if that or the equipment goes wrong, you need someone to uh, who can sort uh, sort the situation out who flexibly, which human beings are very capable of doing. So you need a chap there who can turn it off at the plug, mm -hmm. count to ten, and turn it back on mm -hmm. again. Just to didn't, I didn't realise you had a technical background. Uh, I'm very technical when it comes to electronics, as you well know. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks very much. Much appreciated. Thank you for the tour. Chris Walsh of Nats there. If you do ever get the chance to visit a control tower, you should really uh, leap at the chance. Duncan and I had um, a great afternoon with Chris, and uh, we would have stayed a lot longer if they'd have let us. Uh, we GA pilots usually moan about controlled airspace, and it's often uh, an eye-opener when you get to see the other side of the fence, so to speak. The guys and girls down at Manchester Airport do um, a cracking job keeping the airliners moving safely, and I can really uh, understand why they need to concentrate on doing that rather than talking to the likes of me and Duncan. However, they are keen to help GA pilots fly safely around their airspace and are happy to talk to us if we need their assistance. Anyway, thanks to Chris for giving up his afternoon to take us around. It was uh, a great pleasure for us. Check out the Flying Podcast website for the show notes and for links to those things mentioned on the podcast, such as the uh, low-level route procedures and uh, what Chris was mentioning there, the Visit an ATC Day. Well, that's it for another episode of Flying Podcast. Send me an email if you'd like to take part, or just uh, send your comments or thoughts and ideas for future episodes to the usual address. That's steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again soon.